We recently interviewed author Siobhan Scott about her book, Gaming Addiction, The Experience and the Effects. Today we talk with her co-author, Nels Clark. Nels is a researcher, gamer, game designer, and commentator on the topic of video game addiction. Currently a professor at DigiPen Institute of Technology, a school specializing in game development and design, he comes to the topic of video games both empirically and with a more neutral tone. He has written for The Escapist and Gamasutra and joins us on Flip Switch today. Niels, welcome to Flip Switch. Thank you very much. Uh, video Game Addiction, you, you have a book out about it. Originally us, titled Game Addiction. What made you want to write about that? Most of all, that started out of a conversation with my co-author, Siobhan Scott, who's a licensed clinician in California. And we wanted to present the issues neutrally. There are a lot of people that have reason to be very pro-game or very anti-game. And there was a lot of research out there that we both felt was really being ignored. And just in conversations, we decided to start, <laughs> which is not the best way to write a book, not, not the way nonfiction books are written. But, you know, it was an adventure, and I think we both had enough good things to say that it eventually got published. One of the contentions has been that uh, that video game, if not addiction, at least certain aspects of video gaming, as the technology, as the cost and development and the uh, story writing has gotten bigger and better, that the problems of playing games too much has become more of an issue. Does any research validate that as a concern? Playing too much? Yeah. And I think you were trying to get at this big part of it has to do with the technology and how it's structured. You don't go into an MMO game to, you know, play for a half an hour a week just to blow off some steam. Those games are made and really to some degree are worlds. There are spaces that we can enter just like we could go to a coffee shop. There are people that we can meet only in those games and have certain kinds of experiences that are designed and designed to be rewarding, designed to take a lot of time. It's like having almost an amusement park that you're expected to be at every evening. To some extent, one of the along with those same lines, um, along with technology, one of the things we've talked about with, uh, especially with different gaming developers, is kind of the future is moving towards not just online platforming, but uh, it's also moving towards uh, cross-platforming, where maybe you go onto Facebook and you can get right back into the game somehow that way, or you have an iPhone and they have an application that. So at some point where you can literally never have to stop playing the game. Do you see that as, as an issue, becoming more of an issue where one day literally um, you can't get away from it? Because like any, like you take an alcoholic, hopefully they can stop going to bars or at least they need to. Whereas it's, you know, it's not as easy uh, in an increasing technological world to get away from some of these things. Sure. So I actually talk about that in the book, drawing the comparison between, you know, the Kindle, which is something that, you know, you can download words onto, and mud games, but we don't play text-based MMOs anymore. Though you will see a point where the computing technology grows enough that we can play something like Warcraft that has a lot more of the in-depth element on the bus. Though right now you can play something like a Facebook game on the bus, and a lot of people do. 
you can get at these games all the time. And what eventually has to happen, I think, people talk about the holodeck and how when we get to that extreme level of visual and auditory eventual technology, we'll never leave these games. I think before we get to that point, I think we're already to the point where some people have enough of the technology and entertainment that they want that they never really need to leave their houses. At some point, you need to develop this technology of balancing the media worlds we go into for recreation, entertainment, whatever, and the real world. At some point, there's an understanding, I think, that starts to form. And to be honest, these technologies haven't been pervasive enough in the general population's lives yet that this starts to become readily apparent. I think gamers may be different, and this is just my opinion, some gamers seem to be getting this idea, whoa, you know, this game isn't for me because it is a little bit too addictive. And in some unpublished survey research, what I found is that many gamers do avoid media that they recognize as something that's going to be taking too much time. And many people outside the games industry are starting, you know, like spouses and girlfriends right. who look in from the outside, see what they call it addictiveness, but what actually, there are many different reasons you can play too much. So right, it's, right. Bit, it's so much more complex than what people would attribute it to, which is what the book is about. But people looking in from the outside say, whoa, these gamers are getting way too into it. I don't have that much time to spend, so I'm not going to get into it. Though they spend their time on other things, media is getting more and more sensational. It's getting more and more time-consuming. I had a student who called games instead of hardcore, longcore, which I thought was really apt. What we're finding, though, is that they're getting so involving and so time-consuming that at some point, individuals have stepped out and said, whoa. But I think collectively, what we start to do is create, and this is in the first few pages of our book, like, we start to create this technology of balance where we start to just get some basic guidelines for why we get so sucked in and what we can do about it. Along those lines, to some extent, when we've talked to developers and asked them their thoughts on video game addiction specifically, you know, they say you know, they're a little concerned about it, but ultimately it is the responsibility of the person to kind of monitor their own behavior. And just so they would say just like somebody who drinks too much, somebody who smokes too much, whatever. Looking at how, to some extent, video games can be structured in such a almost casino-like way, is there a point where that argument either doesn't work or needs to be modified? What sure. are your views yeah. on that? There's a point where that, and it's a line that you hear all the time. I'm making a game as well. I'm in the process of forming just an independent game studio, mm -hmm. but in going to conferences and having really frank conversations with developers, who I won't name, but, you know, uh, across the board, when you don't approach it as a, you know, sort of entrenched argument, when you're not going crazy like, yeah, you make addictive software, and I hate, or, you know, or uh, the media probably gets this automatically, someone talking to the media is going to say, well, you know, responsibility-wise. Right. But when you have a frank conversation with a developer and, you know, 
you're not coming at it from one of those perspectives. What you find is uh, usually a pretty genuine interest. What's interesting, you mentioned regulation, and you know, a lot of the times with kids, developers tend to like to say it's the parents' responsibility. What developers with kids very often say is that they're becoming the bad guys because they do watch their kids, and so many parents don't, that uh, their kids start resenting that their parents are in the games industry and actually understand what's good and what's bad because so many other parents don't. And all they have to do is go to their friend's house to play exactly what they want to play. Mm. Along with that, uh, to some extent, we see the shift in uh, gaming. In fact, one of the things we've heard is, hey, now you can game with your parents. And uh, I don't know how many Which people are cool. actually, actually doing that. But at the same time... Are you a parent? I'm myself. I'm not a parent, but um, I, I remember the last thing I wanted to do was play hardly any games with my parents when I was 17. But uh, then again, my I parents, loved it. my parents were not that cool though. So maybe, uh, maybe if they had been a little hipper. Uh, but maybe. I guess what what I'm uh, what I'm wondering is uh, is is that like asking smokers to tell their kids not to smoke? Uh, you know, and it really depends. Not every gamer, and especially not every parent, you know, who has to work and whatnot has time to be a game addict. Mm -hmm. Really interesting conversation that runs, maybe it doesn't fit that analogy, I don't think, mm -hmm. and it may be a powerful counterpoint, is a great article from a woman, Lisa Poizzo, who writes on Massively and writes about playing with her entire family and being a gamer being able to raise her kids to follow their own interests where they naturally lead and supporting those even when they do include games and then eventually MMO games. You didn't, you know, be springing something like MMOs on a kid probably before, too much before their teens. Though it happens and she talks about, you know, doing that in a controlled manner. But what you find in some of her writings is that this is just a part of our lives. And it's something that we understand and we're controlling, you know, and setting boundaries for in a pretty logical way. So I think for parents that are interested in maybe having their kids play with them when they reach, you know, the appropriate age and being tuned into that, she might be an interesting person to read. We'll be right back with more of our interview with Nels Clark right after this. This is Shira with your Tech Corner Tech Tip of the Week. There are 10,080 minutes in a week, and I just spent 10 of them on the Virginia Tech website checking out their great time management program. Unfortunately, this program won't help you build a time machine from the junk at the bottom of your backpack, but what it will do is help you to get to know yourself so you can make good decisions about how to use your time. It includes helpful strategies, quizzes, and other tools that can help you find the time to achieve your academic goals and still sleep at night. If you'd like to learn ways to use your time more effectively, this free program is for you. To check it out, open your browser and type in http colon slash slash www.ucc.vt.edu slash lynch slash time management.htm. Don't worry if you didn't get that, we'll also post it on our blog. This has been Shira with your Tech Corner Tip of the Week. See you next week! The 
The Child and Adolescent Bipolar Foundation is a national not-for-profit web-based membership organization of families raising children diagnosed with pediatric bipolar disorder. You can find us online at www.bpkids.org. CABF is available online 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Since 1999, the CABF online community has served as a meeting place for families faced with the challenge of raising children with bipolar disorder. Our mission is to educate families, professionals, and the public, to connect families with resources, to advocate for and empower affected families, and to support research on the disorder and its cure. At bpkids.org, help is always available, whether you post on our many message boards, become a member of an online support group, download helpful educational materials, or connect with local resources through the guidance of our family response team. Join CABF online at www.bpkids.org, the Child and Adolescent Bipolar Foundation. Remember, early intervention can save lives. Return with more of our interview with Nels Clark. In this part of the interview, we'll ask him about the future of gaming research and the future of overlapping technologies. One of the things we always ask is now that, especially even console games are moving more online, uh, having huge online areas, especially MMOs where you spend countless hours playing them and interacting in a very real way. It used to be that video games, one of the things parents were always concerned about is, oh, my child's super isolated and becoming socially inept. But by definition, an MMO is a social entity. Do you consider the type of interaction that goes on, even console gaming when you're playing like a sports game uh, with somebody across the country or uh, interactions in MMO, is that truly social? This is where it's hard to say because your audience is going to be very broad, but I think that this is the kind of question that gets very individual and the kind of thing that someone like a therapist would want to assess because different kids are going to have different needs socially. Some will be getting a lot of face-to-face interaction elsewise. They won't need to, yeah, I mean, like, things will be balanced. And this is what I, also kind of what I get to with understanding what that balance means. You need to be, especially when you're a kid, interacting in many different venues, many different ways. I think that you can overemphasize face-to-face interaction to the point where you cut out all of this technological type interaction, which could be a liability for kids growing up in this generation, Mm -hmm. they are going to need to understand IM, you know, like text messaging. They're going to need to understand different conventions and cultures online and be open to learning new ones. But at the same time, kids need to be developing their skills in all sorts of areas. And if they're not getting enough face-to-face interaction, if they're not getting those cues and learning cultural conventions in many different venues interpersonally in real space, the primary world, they're going to be at a disadvantage later on in life. Um, are there, are there uh, kind of things that not just parents, but even uh, teens and young adults should be on the lookout so that it doesn't become a problem and they can continue to be, uh, you know, somebody who enjoys gaming every now and then? Teens and young adults typically will not have developed 
self-awareness to the degree. This is something that they will need constant coaching from a parent. And this is how I understand it. I'm not a therapist, but so far as I've gleaned working with them, and especially when gaming is used as a sort of surrogate babysitter, Mm -hmm. which should never happen, but which, because of cultural conditions in the U.S. and elsewhere, certainly does happen, games aren't babysitters, and they shouldn't be used as such. And kids, even as they're getting into their later teens, are still developing in crucial ways, and oftentimes presenting them with a game, which is designed to be rewarding, is going to be so attractive an option with all the different stresses that they have going on in their lives, they're not going to be a neutral observer at all. You give them something like World of Warcraft, and it's uh, goodbye, Dorothy. Right, right, right. <laughs> Land on the Wicked Witch. <laughs> right, right. When you were researching your book, uh, you, you looked at a lot of the kind of the actual data that was existed, and not just kind of polemics. Was there anything that surprised you in the in the research? I was surprised at the ignorance on both sides. You had clinical researchers and you had more humanities researchers Mm -hmm. and the two had absolutely no interest in what the other side was doing. It was like uh, the left hand and the right hand and there were clinicians who would clearly never play the game (laughs) and talk to very few people who would ever play games but they were out there doing research. There were people on the humanities side who were researching very medically-oriented topics. And it was very clear that they had no idea. Like, they had done very little research on how medical professionals treated this and what would actually be a useful metric. They were creating studies to establish themselves, which is part of how our academic system works, especially, well, on both sides but really shocked me as a gamer even starting out just doing uh, my master's thesis even. It was evident, and it it was a little bit disturbing and a little bit disheartening, and that was just first impressions. That was before I even got to any of the specifics. When it comes to actually measuring quantitatively what's going on with addiction, I've been on to some other projects in the last few months, so, you know, maybe something has come out in the last few months that has shocked the world with wonderful measures, but people are out there getting numbers, mm-hmm. yeah, but what are the questions that they're asking to get those numbers? Right. And this harkens back to this first problem. If the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, mm-hmm. if you have researchers who clearly don't play many games, or if you have a lot of data gathered without really firm footing on what medically you should be asking, you're going to have a lot of data, which is good in the exploratory sense, in that you're trying to get a grip on what's going on, and God knows games are new but you're not necessarily going to have numbers which accurately represent every aspect of what you're trying to study. And there's very little agreement out there. 
So when you're reading in the New York Times or such, or uh, I think most recently it was the USA Today, that uh, X and X percentage of young adults are addicted to video games, you have to be critical of those numbers, but not dismissive, I think. I think a lot of gamers err on the side of being dismissive in that they hear people saying, oh, these numbers, well, we can't trust them. <laughs> and they think, oh, well, that means the games are totally safe. <laughs> playing, playing an MMO no. for 13 hours straight isn't a problem. Yeah, okay. 13 hours, that's kid stuff. Yeah, yeah I know, actually, unfortunately. That's that's trust me, I know. <laughs> I played 13 hours of Warcraft before this interview. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah, um, uh, what... One of the, you know, our population typically is uh, uh, deals with bipolar, uh, which uh, has uh, a marked manic or hypomanic uh, and issues of impulsivity. And one of the one of the arguments used by uh, one of the game designers we talked to was any kind of addiction issue, video games is just the drug that will be in front of them, so to speak. And without the video games, it would be something else. And so I've heard that argument. It's really a personality type. Do you? What do you think of, times, of that? Yeah. What do you think of that? I should really come up with some sort of established line for that argument, but <laughs> I haven't yet. Game work in specific ways. Drugs work in specific ways, and the two are different. Games obviously are not drugs. So I think the the first error there is to equate the two because that. I think this game developer is not doing himself any favors because he is equating the game with the drug right off the bat. Something like cannabis affects your brain in a very specific way. Mimics your body's native cannabinoid receptor. Or cannabinoid, you know, goes into the receptor. Boof, you know, you have effect. Uh, games are systems of rewards. And you can watch the synapses uh, spike up. But it's not like something, it's not something like cocaine where a physical substance is actually stopping dopamine from being able to leave the synaptic cleft. Uh, it, games give you these very expectable, very designed-in rewards. And they also present you with systems where you have presence in a world. You can step into a world and have physical immersion where, in many cases, just physically, you can lose track of the world around you. Sometimes there are people inside almost making it a world albeit a world that's been designed to be rewarding for you. Sometimes you even get to decide what's in that world. You get to create this own world. Uh, you can trace those back to the core technologies. This is kind of the line I've been on recently of how games are different from other forms of media, and I'd rather think of them as a form of media, not as a drug. Mm -hmm. Because uh, yeah. media can be very expressive, but they do create these places that can draw us in and keep us in for perfectly explainable reasons. But also, 
they, you know, they're not just like any other place. They're a place that's designed to be rewarding and a wonderful alternative. So whether you're talking about someone in a manic cycle, they could certainly, someone suffering from depression would certainly find nice alternative to, you know, languishing in something like World of Warcraft. And that's not always a relationship that's purely good or bad. It's mixed. If you look at the research done by Gerald Block, even his case studies, even this early on, you know, in the sort of research scene, you see that the relationships people build can sometimes stave off even more terrible things. If you have someone with a real problem, they need therapist that realizes that there can be very therapeutic effects while also uh, very damaging effects. And I think people like to be very dismissive and it's very easy to take the sum of someone's problems and turn it into, oh, he's addicted to games. Mm -hmm. You have that side. What's happening is complicated. Let's talk about that for a moment, especially, uh, you know, we're, we're, we got into this talking about video game addiction. That's where, like impulsivity issues with bipolar, we need to talk about this. We have come upon this great dearth of research that also suggests there's some very positive effects for video games just past them just being generally fun. What did you find on that end? There are some specific research benefits that are kind of brainers to me. You have serious games that can teach people what are they being taught. You have places people can enter to re-experience something like an Israeli bus bombing and lower their stress level so they can go out and, okay, those all seem like pretty logical steps. And I think we haven't seen the last of them. You're going to see people using these technologies. That is the fact that we can have presence inside of the world, the fact that we can design in rewards, the fact that we can create our own experiences, and the fact that other people are here in commercial technologies like Facebook, where you have really social, and then the games peppered in there do their own thing, but also the educational with the serious games and medical with other medical serious games and such. They can be useful tools, but I think as someone, you know, as gamers even, seeing a lot of the applications that are made, people get excited and I'm happy for them, <laughs> but I don't know seems pretty obvious. Lastly, moving forward on the issue of video game addiction, what do you think people need to be aware of? And I'm, I'm talking specifically kind of as we kind of research this area. That's actually what I'm working on now on my downtime with this game is a bit more of a general audience piece where I'm actually kind of grappling with that right now is how do you crystallize and break down some of this? Because in game addiction, we get to it, but it is really complicated. Mm -hmm. You have issues of self-regulation, you have issues of understanding uh, the structuration of addiction, uh, you have these different technologies, you have the immersion aspects, which, you know, physically, why we're drawn in, it's pretty interesting, the fact that I love throwing around the most is that there's really no difference say, between the visual image we take in on a television screen when we're watching some sort of uh, show like Lost 
and real experience, real visual experience, the brain and eyes of human beings have no inborn mechanism to separate those two. So we have a lot of the same reactions. The frame can fall away. And especially as we get, you know, really sensational media, it gets really easy just to watch that. And you can take measured acceptance of that. You know, like, uh, that's, that's not always 100%. Well, I'm immersed immediately. But when you have as many elements as something like an MMO game, it becomes sometimes very difficult to not be immersed. Mm-hmm. But in general, the beauty of culture, I think, also needs to be explored in those conversations. And some of the other issues, besides just addiction, uh, I think are words like addiction and video game violence and video game learning. These are buzzwords that capture certain constellations of issues that we ought to be exploring for good and for ill. But we use those constellations, I think, those buzzwords get us excited for certain areas, but I think there are other areas to capture. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm struggling with that now. How do you make that really, really simple? And it's difficult. Right, right, right. It's complicated. Yeah. I'm working on that. I mean, but I'm not the only person doing this. Sure, we'll see plenty of people. There are plenty of researchers, especially, who are using things like uh, just different measures for studying addiction and playing with those. And to some degree, I guess we ought to have something that's broken down. Academics are going to try and find criteria to measure addiction anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, people might as well make some good criteria. Right. There's only so far you can go with that because if you're really going to diagnose something like addiction and apply that label, you really need like a therapist mm-hmm. who is getting a one-on-one relationship who can actually make that call. It's not really something you can diagnose with something like eight criteria, and it's certainly never something you'll be able to diagnose with Ken Young's IAD criteria as right. they first existed where something like being preoccupied with a game is one of your criteria towards being addicted to it, well, that kind of conflates normal play because if you've played any of these games, especially with other people, sometimes you will be preoccupied with what's going on when you're walking around in the real world because it's just another space. Right. You know, it's just another place to have conversation. Plus you can be preoccupied with like six different games. It doesn't have to be one specific game, right? You're addicted, aren't you? Uh, I you know that, I think that is the number one thing about all gaming is that when people play it, they can tell well, they're having a good time. They're like, man, if I, if I sat here all day, th- this could be easy for anybody to fall down this hole, so to speak. Well, and what's happening though, more broadly, you see this happening in other audiences as these new elements, as the availability of this culture, for lack of a better word, is so pronounced you see new artifacts like people who are perfectly fine with watching all three seasons of Lost on their weekend. People who've never touched a video game who are finding all new avenues to fall into these worlds. Mm-hmm. And especially once we have technologies where you know we can watch these shows and this is the example also I use in the book on our couch, but we're hearing the voices of our friends on a couch in Mumbai, yeah. 
and maybe also a friend in Beijing, and we're all cracking jokes at Jack on Lost. These are technologies that are probably maybe not directly resulting from gaming, but ways that it, they do become more social, media does become more social, ways that we're going to have to learn how to deal with. And when they hit most regular people, they're not prepared at all. I think gamers do tend to get some understanding of how to balance this stuff, but for some, that was just an ability to regulate that was pre-existing. Right, right. Like, they were able to balance their stuff before, and they were after. A lot of gamers still don't know how to balance this stuff. And they bounce around. Like, they say... Warcraft is too addictive, I'm retiring all of my characters. And they do that, but they have a hard time finding that balance once they leave. They may get a job, spend more diligent time on the job that they had before. This is, you know, presuming someone who's had problems. Not everyone does. Some people have good regulation to begin with. But in this case that I was talking about, you know, maybe someone bounces around between different media still have problems. Hmm. So it's all complicated. Nels Clark, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. If you want to know more about Nels, go to his website at nelsclark.blogspot.com or you can pick up his book with author Siobhan Scott, Gaming, the Experiences and the Effects at Amazon.com.